Miss You Day Chicago is a church made of congregations rallying around the singular vision of joining God in the renewal of all things new. If you like what you hear, stay tuned for more information. Good morning. Good morning. I'm going to go ahead and read our verse for today. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came to there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Uh, For those who are still in town and not traveling yet for... Thanksgiving, welcome. Um, I uh, just a couple announcements before we jump into the sermon today. We are um, doing these groups that are once a month groups called table groups. Uh, they're just a great way to meet up with other people in the church, get to get a meal, a potluck meal once a month. Um, there's a, a QR code if you want to sign up. Um, we'll be doing this for like three to four months, and then we can kind of have an evaluation if you want to co- continue that commitment. After that, um, and there'll be a time of just some discussion. Our slide is a little dark; you can't see it. Um, the other announcement is uh, tomorrow uh, here in this space. Um, Scott the painter is what he goes by. Scott Erickson, um, an artist, is going to be performing here. I think we've we have about 250 tickets and about uh, 15 left. Um, so it'll be a packed house. So if you haven't signed up for that and you want to come, um, that would be. It's a great show, um, and it's a performative art show. Think like. Comedy meets art meets some serious conversation about uh, giving up on yourself. Um, and so it's, it's, it's called Say Yes, A Liturgy of Not Giving Up on Yourself. So um, it's at 7 p.m. here. Um, so you can scan that QR code. If you need help, they're $20 a ticket, I think, 2025. If you need help financially, though, like I've got some, some codes to help you out yeah, for, for any of those that can't um, afford that. Um, but yeah, we'd love to see you there. Um, it's going to be a good time. Um, with that said, we're going to jump into my sermon. So let me pray for us one more time. Um, God, we thank you so much for the day. We thank you for this community gathered. We thank you for just the sunshine today and this weekend and this beautiful fall weather. We're um, just so thankful for who you are. Um, and I just invite you, whether you're here full of faith or you're here full of doubt, uh, would you just make some space to enter in some silence in your life to give you some quiet, and if you're someone who prays, to ask God to to speak to you. Um, So just pay attention for what's coming up for you today for a moment. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to start off today by telling, talking to you about three different characters. Um, and uh, if, you, if you're in my, if you've been around my children, you know that they're big uh, Swifties. And talk about Taylor Swift. We had a child care s- sitter come over and 
And she was like, I was like, how'd it go? She's like, it went good. I was like, I know everything there is to know about Taylor Swift now. So, um, um, so the three characters here, two of them, the other character I want to talk to you about is Travis Kelsey, who is a relatively well-known tight end who plays for... See, um, half of you. So yeah, relatively known. Um, Well, so after this particular game, uh, he was seen wearing this white and blue outfit made by Kid Super. Raise your hand if you know who Kid Super is. Look at you, look at you fashionistas. And oh man, Uh, so so, uh, Kid Super is what he's wearing there. And the third person is is Taylor Swift. You know, um, raise your hand if you know who Taylor Swift is. Okay, most of you. Uh, so Swift was shown at this game probably seven to 50 times, depending on what station you were watching, referenced five to 50 times. Um, and uh, she's shown leaving with Kelsey who, uh, after the game. And the result of all these uh, celebrity associations, the third party of the story was that Kid Super's clothing immediately sells out. Um, And so the designer company said this in an interview, we knew instinctively just being in proximity to Taylor Swift, whose popularity and influence is astronomical, could mean big things for the brand. Um, I say this because uh, one of the most well-known people in the world is cheering on someone that's somewhat well-known, Kelsey, and automatically the designer sales went through the roof. Now, um, this might seem like a stretch, but I, what I'm, what, what I, I tell you this because I want to take the context of this passage in Luke 7, you can put that back on the screen, and help you understand that there was a little bit of a Taylor Swift effect going on um, in the setting of this passage and in a lot of times in the setting of all the meals in the Gospel of Luke. So, uh, it, it, the cultural norms that Jesus is, these are also the cultural norms that Jesus was undermining in his teaching. In this passage of Luke 7, there is a Pharisee who uh, is, is, the Pharisees were not crazy popular, they had some status, um, but Jesus at the time, he wasn't Taylor Swift popular, he's probably more like Travis Kelsey popular, but he was an emerging prophet, right? He was an emerging leader, emerging personality, emerging prophet that people were getting a following. And in that time, status was everything, and the way you grew your status was by sitting next to or inviting over someone of more emerging status to your house. And a lot of these times, there would be meals of various people coming together to talk about world events, talk about um, what is going on in society, Um, and people would want, this Pharisee was wanting to um, leverage his status to get um, a little closer to this emerging leader, Jesus. Let me give you another passage that kind of gives a, some background that Jesus breaks this um, Taylor Swift effect of, of, of status-seeking um, by proximity in Luke 7. Excuse me. Um, Luke 7, go that uh, slide a couple of slides down, it says this, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to the house of a prominent Pharisee, so similar thing, he was being carefully watched, and he noticed the guests picked a place of honor at the table. And he told them this parable, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may, not, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. 
Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Um, So here in Luke 14, he's given this example of how um, the status seeking, the seeking of hierarchy uh, is one that he's trying to dismantle. And, And while... Uh, Jesus says at this Pharisee's house, we're gonna, what I want to show you today is, is uh, teach about humble spirituality. That's kind of the, the topic today, the, the theme of the message is how do we have a humble spirituality? Um, I believe that uh, this, this sense of, of Luke 7, this Pharisee kind of wanted to leapfrog ahead in the status game by bringing Jesus along into his house. And Jesus said, this is a risky move in Luke 14. He says, someone of higher status... Um, may ask you to move because um, you took a seat of someone else and you would be publicly shamed instead of honor. Um, now, we might not think of ourselves as like status-seeking society or, or hierarchy um, views of, of, of social norms, and it, but it feels different now, but I would argue that that, that nature and, and, and dynamic is still at play in our, in our society. Um, and I think it comes to play by what I would summarize as the winner's script. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the phrase, the winner's script. Uh, but this, this sense that we're all, we're all going to be winners, it's indicative embedded deep into to like kind of the American psyche. If you work hard and roll up your sleeves, then you're a winner. You know, this, um, it's a default into self-reliant, um, dangerous yet of, of this declaration of autonomy. And it can be antithetical to the way of Jesus. You know, the original spirit of Jesus and the original movement of Jesus, if you think about it, it's kind of lost today in our culture. Um, It's very much lost, and it's gotten institutionalized in a lot of ways. And the church has really kind of, what I would say, you know, gotten in bed with the empire, if you will. It's it's, it's, um, So let me explain this. So back, there's a slide here. When you think about Christianity, back in Jesus' time in the ancient Near East and in Israel— People were invited to experience Jesus. I mean, they were experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. They were experiencing the power of Jesus. It was being invited into an experience, which we're going to see today as this woman, this um, sinful woman uh, has with Jesus in a minute. Um, but that began to shift in when the philosophers of the day began to philosophize and the culture of Aristotle and things like that became prominent during Paul's time. It, Christianity then kind of shifted less into an experiencing the holy into a philosophy. So it became much more about ideas and what, who is Jesus? Well, you know, we've got to really figure this out theologically. Then when Constantine made Christianity the uh, official religion of the time, Christianity became organized religion. And then in America today, I would say Christianity is big business. It's a growth industry or attempting or wanting to be a growth industry. Uh, And I would be interested if somebody could create an app where they kind of just figured out the market of Christianity, of how much money is spent um, and, and used and, and from all the different Christian organizations. I, I, I think the, 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 what I'm getting at is the danger of today is that Christianity has become a business for a lot of people, and we've lost the heart of Jesus. We've lost the heart of Jesus. And um, we see this, you know, I think about this, how we, we talk, a lot of preachers and things will point out like the scandals of pastors and scandals of prominent leaders you hear on the news. But if you slow down and think about it, no one's talking about who is consuming this business 
And who is putting those leaders in positions of power? And it's us as the consumer that want that kind of person to be leading, if you think about it that way. And what I want to talk to you today is about how do we move away from this winner script Christianity, this big business feel of Christianity, to a humble spirituality that Jesus intended. So I just want to dive into the passage. And I want to give some good news with that. Um, It's not all... um, sad news or bad news, um, every one of these things, there was an emerging humble spiritual people within each one of these decades, genre, you know, generations that emerged out of this. So there's hope. It's not all doom and gloom. Um, But I want to just jump into this passage um, and and, and talk about it for a little bit. So back to the slide. Um, First off, it talks about this prominent Pharisee or this Pharisee Simon who... uh, who invited Jesus over for dinner, back one more to 36. And, um, and Jesus went to this Pharisee's house. Now, a Pharisee, uh, just to give you a little background, a reminder, Pharisees were, the, there was the Pharisees, the Zealots, and the Sadducees were the three major sects of Judaism and, and these different tribes and streams. Pharisees were the most uh, conservative of the group. Um, Pharisees would have had the Torah Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers memorized by the age of 13. Um, they they uh, had writings upon writings and oral teachings interpreting the law and considered themselves experts of the law. Um, they, the, in some ways, we kind of, they would have been the conservative, you know, evangelical equivalent if you had to make one today. Um, so the good things about them that is they had a desire to know what God's word was, um, but the, the challenge is they became very self-righteous. Uh, they also were separatists, so they were very much uh, wanting to keep pure their group um, and keep uh, anybody who is different at bay uh, to protect this good tribe that they believe they, that they belong to. Um, and then, um, so he invites Jesus over to this house and reclined at this table. And it says, now that a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Um, so now we have entered in the second character of the story. Um, like, like Swift's story, we have three characters here, Jesus, Pharisee, and the sinful woman. The sinful woman, let me just give you a little, you know, the word sinful there. Um, in the Gospels, when you see the word sinful, it is not using the word sin the way Paul would write in epistles later on. When Paul or other letters in the Bible you're reading, those letters that you read after the Gospels use the word sinful, it's just showing that we are like, um, we're all uh, flawed but created good. Um, there's, a, there's a fly in the ointment for all of us. Um, and when, when the Gospels use the word sinner, it is much more of a label of social outcast. Um, so when you read that, it's not saying this woman was this horrible sinful woman. It's just saying she was a social outcast in that time. Um, a lot of people began to try to, uh, commentaries try to point out uh, what, what was her sin, you know, what uh, they label her a prostitute. Um, maybe uh, there, there was a very common effect going on in these meals where men only were invited into a social meal and um, women would come as, to get paid as their only chance of livelihood um, that, that front lived in the city, like it references, and they would maybe play flute, serve food, and there could be, you know, sexual favors involved. Um, so, but we don't know. 
but I think it's interesting that commentators want to pinpoint what this woman's sin is, but yet when we have someone like Simon Peter in Luke 5, who's also called a sinner, commentaries, commentators aren't trying to figure out what Simon Peter's sin was. Um, so I think we need to like back off of this woman a little bit here and give her a little bit of understanding. It was common for women to show up to have an, a financial uh, livelihood to these dinner parties. And so, um, you know, food back then um, was used to either include or exclude. Um, so here we have this meal setting. It was, it was exclusive only to these men. Um, and just this has always been the case. We look at segregation in the civil rights era where no blacks allowed to eat. Food has always been used to either include or exclude. So I thought about this passage a lot, especially with us going into Thanksgiving, going into our meals, going into meals with family, maybe family that we are, um, there may be some relational strife there or or tension there for some, um, or even just thinking of who to include for uh, in this season who might not have family around. Um, And so I want to contrast this Simon Simon the Pharisee with this woman who's labeled social outcast. Um, you know, Simon, to his credit, he can add all these, this, this event now to his resume. He's a man who's used to being entitled, and he's in debt to no one. And you set that in contrast to this woman, and she's totally in debt. No sense of entitlement, no superiority. She knows who she is, and she's going to get an alabaster flask of perfume. She's going to walk into this religious meal. She's going to walk through the door, and imagine she's nervous. I imagine she's afraid of how she's going to be judged. Um, She's probably not wanting to make eye contact. She walks into a house full of religious men wearing their religious garb. And you don't walk in as an uninvited guest, as the only woman. These men would have stopped their conversation. And regardless, her actions of touching, kissing, and perfuming Jesus' feet do likely have these, these, they have intimate connotations. I think that they were passionate, but not erotic. And, I, and, she, and she becomes overwhelmed with emotion, and it says she begins to weep. And it says she weeps on Jesus' feet, and she uses her hair because she probably didn't know she was going to be overcome with such emotion when she encountered Jesus. Um, she, she, Simon offered Jesus, you know, you contrast that with Simon. Simon offered Jesus no water for his feet. Um, and Jesus gets into this in a minute. But let me, before I get ahead, she's, she's weeping. And I love what Martin Luther says. He calls these tears heart water. Um, true repentance often looks like sober gratitude. These tears are coming from this place out of her heart, publicly acknowledging before all these other self-righteous condemning men, yes, I am a sinner. I have deep deep awareness of my life, and she begins to bawl. Um, and so she gets, she gets into this, 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 this setting, and I imagine now, like, makeup running down her face, not running down her nose, and so much tears are beginning to wet Jesus' feet. She didn't have a towel to dry Jesus' feet, so she uses her hair, which a woman's hair is known as her glory. She uses that which is most glorious to clean Jesus' feet. In the Talmud, the Jewish commentary, a woman letting down her hair in front of any man beside her husband was grounds for a divorce. And Simon gave Jesus no greeting, and he gets into this. Um, 
it says that we, we get to see some of G- Simon's response. He has like this thought, next slide, and he says that, uh, man, if Jesus was a prophet, he would know who is touching her and doing this, right? Like and, and that she's a sinner. And then later on in the passage, um, Jesus says, tells him a parable. He's like, gives him like a little bit of kindergarten spirituality. He's like, imagine there's a debtor and um, there, there's a bank and one, one person in debt owes 500 denarii. And then there's another person who owes 50 and the bank forgives both. Who is more grateful for, for he's like, well, I guess the one who had more debt. It's like, exactly. And he tells Simon Peter, uh, he says this, he says that, um, I came into your house, you did not give me any water for my feet, right? Jesus would have been traveling all day. Um, he would have been, he, he says, you, 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 but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, right? It was culturally common to greet someone with another kiss. I don't, I don't know if there's any Italian families in here, but if you're Italian and you come home to mom and you don't greet her with a kiss... I don't, I'm not Italian, but something's about to go down, right? Like, that's not kosher, right? That's not cool. And so, um, so he's like, you, you, you didn't give me a cultural greeting, appropriate cultural greeting. Um, you just wanted me for your status. But she, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put any oil on my head, right? You would have been traveling sweaty, and yet she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown but whoever's been forgiven little loves little. And so um, Jesus basically kind of takes off his glasses, has that like parental conversation that Jesus is contrasting Simon's heart with who is supposed to be the host with this woman's hospitality. Simon is interviewing Jesus looking for outrage while this woman is outrageously worshiping. And I think about that in our own lives. How many of us are just looking for outrage? Going around, look, you know, it feels like our culture, or if you're on, you're just looking for outrage. Um, you know, back in the 90s, if you went to Applebee's like you do in 90s, and you had a bad burger, you just had to suck it up and eat it. You, didn't go, you couldn't go leave a review on Yelp. Now it's like, I didn't get napkins, bad review, right? It's like, I got a bad review, bad review. Like, we're just... No, now, everyone in America is like, I have to put a bad review. Um, I once looked at Yellowstone National Park reviews, and there was a one-star review for Yellowstone National Park. I mean, can you believe that? Like, I didn't get to see any bears. Like, how do you, like, God's creation, Yellowstone National Park, how do you leave a one-star review? That's just ridiculous. Um, I just want to say that, like, what if, what if we just stopped our judging what if we turned off, learned to turn off that part of our brain that's always making these judgments? Because our judgment doesn't mean anything, that we leave all judgment to God. I mean, human judgment really doesn't mean anything. The status, the culture, your class, the money, your clothes, like who cares at the end of the day? I would, you know, I don't know about you, but maybe you've heard that phrase and maybe it's been used to harm you, like the sense of like God's judgment. I remember hearing as a kid in a small fundamental church, God is going to judge. And I would tremble as a nine-year-old kid. And when the Bible says, speaks about God's judgment, I want to let you know that that's good news because I want his judgment over your judgment any day. Because his judgment is slow to judgment, he's merciful, he's good, and he loves you not because of your goodness, but because of his goodness. And so what I want to do the rest of the message is kind of get, I want to pause the teaching of the passage and just a few reflections. One, I want to 
um, do some equipping with you for briefly, and then I want to kind of talk into the difference between the winter script spirituality and a humble spirituality. Is that cool? Um, so first, just some equipping. If, um, how do we protect ourselves? How do we grow? How do we not become like Simon Peter um, that comes with this harsh judgment of morale, attaches morality to this woman's actions? Um, how do we go home for Thanksgiving and have conversations with people who have completely different moral views because, you know, you're, you're meeting your, your dad or mom who lives in, you know, small town Indiana, and, and, and you have completely opposite worldviews. How do you do this? Well, I want to equip you with, with what I would, what, um, from something from a book by Jonathan Haidt, a book that I read years ago that's really helped me. It's, why, it's called, why, uh, it's, it, what's the, A Righteous Mind, the subtitle is Why Good People Are Divided by Religion and Politics. If you're interested, a righteous mind, why good people are divided by religion and politics. And what he talks about in this book is he says we all kind of have these moral, t- moral taste buds is what he says. Um, and, and he says our views of morality are much more like taste buds. Um, we tend to view our concern rooted in, hold off one second for the slide so I don't get distracted. Um, we, we, we tend to view our concerns rooted in moral concern. So our concern is a moral concern, and the one we're disagreeing with, they're, we view them as immoral because it violates our moral premise. So the level of complexity around our moral views, he, he does these six um, taste buds. And, and anytime you're having a conversation, um, he says if you're conservative, some of these taste buds are firing off, and if you're liberal, some of the others are firing off. So you can put them back up here. And it's very good to do some self-reflection. What moral taste bud is firing off with my sense of outrage or, or concern? And if you get clarity on that, I think it really helps you, but it also gives you empathy when you disagree on an issue because we are all trying our best, usually, to act in line with what we think is good and right. And um, so, so instead of demonizing the other, we can tend to look at our concern as, as morally good and then the, our opponent as immoral. Um, so he gets into this and he says that, uh, here, let me just run through these quickly. So care harm. This is a lens of, is this harming an individual? Like your morality is like, is this doing damage to someone's dignity, their body, or their psyche? Uh, or is it promoting care? Um, fairness cheating. That might, if you look through your morality through the lens of fairness and cheating, this may be a principle, principle of equity. Um, is this fair or right? Or, or, some, or some being overprivileged in this issue? Like, or is it, you're thinking through equity lenses. Is this fair or right, or are some being overprivileged in this issue? Um, and the third one is loyalty betrayal, which is to say the value of the group is very important, and all that a group brings to a society, so preserving this group is a gift, and anything that threatens that group is seen as betrayal. And then there's authority subversion. Again, the value of order. What does order offer our world that is good? Authority is often seen as the creation of order. This is why we have laws and governing authorities, a beauty of, and goodness to laws, and subversion to those laws is seen as immoral. And then fifth, sanctity degradation has to do kind of with our sense of moral disgust. Um, I would say that this one's a little bit more of one that applies to all of them and how that gets activated when something's being triggered. Um, I tend to see this as a result of the violation of any of these taste buds so that like we have the sense of, of sanctity of like in degradation like we feel a sense of disgust when it, when it happens. And then lastly, liberty and oppression. What is oppressing or holding someone down or pushing someone down in society 
or what is allowing someone to come to the center or the top. And I, I like these because I think it helps us become more specific. Um, what, what moral taste bud is like firing off when I have this issue come up or this perspective? Um, and then again, a lot of these are, can sway different for, maybe you even caught them yourself or noticed yourself. Um, the more liberal, liberal progressives might value care harm um, fairness and cheating, and liberty and oppression, whereas conservatives might think through loyalty and betrayal or authority of subversion. So you think about why you know, conservatives might value military or protecting our society as a value. They see, this, they, they see morality through these lenses. So I say all that to say is what is causing your outrage and anxiety and concern? Are you able to kind of label that? And are you able to like listen differently when you hear other people differ from you? And, and, and be able to have a conversation this Thanksgiving without getting so activated and triggered. Um, so hopefully this is a helpful equipping tool. Um, I know it's a lot of like heady information right now to dive into, um, but I feel like it is helpful for us because without this, we kind of fall into that trap of judgment um, that Simon um, often fell into uh, in, this, in that setting of the story. And, you know, Immature religion creates like a high degree of cognitively rigid people. When, whenever we're immature, we're, we're very cognitively rigid, completely dualistic, black, white, right, wrong, and often very, very crusading and hate, hate can come from that kind of thinking. And Jesus shows a little interest in phony moral purity of Simon Peter, which actually increases um, the sense of, of us-them mentality. Um, so now what I want to do is just kind of transition into the sense of winter script versus a humble spirituality. Um, so um, winter script is kind of that American idol phenomenon in our culture. Whoever wins gets to keep moving forward, and then you get to keep proving yourself that you're the greatest, whereas the way of humility of Jesus and the way of spirituality is completely opposite. God, all throughout Scripture, chooses us because we were the least, not the greatest. He chooses the enslaved people of Egypt. He chooses the rejected one. David, the little runt shepherd boy. It's not the winner script, but the loser script. Now, if you're insulted by that, you might still be thinking from ego. Um, but Jesus constantly is looking at the excluded one, the barren one, the forgotten one, the marginalized one. God chooses Israel, he says in Scripture, because you were not the greatest, but the least. And so, you know, not this very framework that God um, loves us. He calls us because we were not great. He meets us. This is the nature of God. It's a humble spirituality. And when you have spirituality of Jesus that's humble, it's much like this woman in the weeping mode, not in the thinking and analyzing mode. When we experience the humble spirituality of Jesus, we are much more in the heart mode, in the humble weeping mode, not in the analyzing, intellectualizing mode, which is often um, leads to a lot of the, the winner script. Um, and then secondly, a humble spirituality is a participating in union with God. You see this woman, she's, she's like, I, I just want to be with you. I want to, I'm weeping because I'm encountering you. That, that what we talked about, the original Christian movement was about encounter. She's weeping over Jesus and, and not trying to please or impress him, but just being united with him. God doesn't love you so much because you're good. God loves you because God is good. And then lastly, a humble spirituality is 
constantly doing what Jesus does here, forgiveness and inclusion. Jesus was killed because he practiced inclusion and forgiveness, if you think about it. He was literally the reason that the Pharisees wanted to kill him. His forgiveness, accepting beyond the group, his inclusion of I'm not staying here, to, I'm not here to say my group is number one. His own disciples, one time they're driving out demons and, and doing miracles. And, and um, he says, should we now call upon fire from heaven to cast out the Samaritans? And Jesus is like, you completely missed the point. If they are doing good work, if others are doing good work, let them do good work. And um, two-thirds of Jesus' teachings are about forgiveness. And so, you know, the real magic happens on the spiritual journey when we stumble and thumble, fumble through our way, not when we get everything spot on. And that winter script drives us to a life of perfectionism and mastery, which is at odds with the gospel of Jesus, which is one of constant recognition that you grow by getting it wrong, not by getting it right. That that is the walk of faith. Perfectionism discourages honest self-knowledge and basic humility, which are very foundational for psychological and spiritual growth. And um, Jesus is bringing good news to this nameless woman. God, she has no name. She's, she's, she's basically like a nameless, a homeless person. And Simon Peter has a name, a house, a table who can invite famous people to his house. And Jesus has turned reality on its head. What we think is important isn't. And the one, when we assume we are right, the ones we assume are right maybe aren't. And those we judge are at the bottom of the pile. Maybe they are at the top. And this is why Jesus says, do not judge. You do not know the heart. Only God knows the heart. Um, so I just want to encourage us as we close um, that your faith is not in your willpower, your ability to attain, your perfectionism. You are saved by faith, not from those things, but because not because of your status or your willpower or even your goodness. It's because of God's goodness. And may we, in this season of Thanksgiving, enter in with a humble spirituality, um, listening to people of difference, making space, and recognizing that we come with all of our mistakes. And I just wish I had a heart as big of God to receive all my mistakes. I don't know about you. Um, but maybe you need to pay attention to yourself in this season. Maybe you need to um, receive this this season. Maybe like Thanksgiving is a season where you're just like thinking about giving, giving, giving. You can't give what you don't have. And maybe this is a season to slow down and just receive that for yourself afresh in this season. To receive God's love afresh. To receive his goodness afresh. And I wish I really had a heart as big as God because... If I did and gave that kind of love to myself every day, man, I would be like this woman, weeping in gratitude, washing Jesus' feet, coming before him, making sacrificial generosity, breaking my jars of wealth before Jesus and giving up all I have. And so that's good news. So let's pray. Um, God, we come before you um, asking that you would give us the sense of... Uh, humble spirituality, that we would recognize where we, we come to you with a, often with a sense of perf- wanting to be perfect. And God, you were like, that is in the way of my love for you right now. My love for you is not polished. It's not on a production clock. 
It's not, it's not organized in an institutional fashion. My love for you is relational and it's pure. It's joyful. It's fun. It's, 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 um, it's creative. It's playful. My love for you is like, you come to me like a little child. Jesus said, let everyone come to me like a child. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you come to me like a child. So God, we just ask this morning as we pray, I feel like for some, um, religion has gotten in the way of us coming to Jesus in this humble childlike mode. So God, in the season, we, we, you invite us to experience a sense of wonder, a sense of playfulness with you, a sense of joy, running around in a field unhindered, running to our creator. So God, may you do this in your name. May you make us free from restraint free from the bonds of, 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 of maybe religious trauma or pain or, or any kind of sense of damage that is done that hinders us to come to you. God, may we see that uh, the winter script that we get placed on us from society, God, it brings no eternal value to our life, but God, your humble way of spirituality, the way of inclusion and forgiveness, amen, is the way that we want to live. So God, make us a people of inclusion, make make us of a people of forgiveness, where we can hear others of difference and receive them as we are received. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. You guys can stand to your feet. We're going to sing, pray. Um, Some leaders will be available for prayer in the back. Come take communion you feel led and and spend time with God. Thank you so much for listening to this message from Missio Day Lincoln Square. If you'd like to know more about Missio Day Lincoln Square, please reach out to us at lincolnsquare at missiodaychicago.com.